0: Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear from Trevor Oldham, the founder of Podcasting You and host of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. Trevor has been running Podcasting You, a podcasting booking agency that helps real estate investors guest on podcasts. And after working with hundreds of real estate clients, he shares tips and tricks along with insights from his guests for how to start investing in real estate, grow your real estate business, and how to build credibility and become a go to expert.
1: Hey everybody, this is Trevor from the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast and today on the show we have Phil Cabron. Phil served honorably as a naval special warfare combatant craft crewman where he spent his days jumping out of planes, shooting and manning the radios on small fast boats that take Navy SEALs and other special operations personnel to and from their missions in non-permissive or denied areas of the world. During his time in service, Phil realized that real estate was something he had a passion for and can help others, so he committed to pursuing it further. He took a real estate license course while still in the Navy, and upon separation in 2012, immediately went to work selling his military buddies' homes as it transferred to and from Virginia. In 2019, Phil penned his first book, Your VA Loan, and how it can make you a millionaire in an effort to educate more military members and veterans about real estate. Following dozens of brokerage transactions and flipping dozens of properties, he decided to start buying larger properties to sustain. Phil has sponsored over 500 apartment units across eight projects with great results. He realized that the early deals only allowed very wealthy people to participate, which always bothered him. Fortunately, Phil used that bias to fuel the first 100% veteran-owned and operated fund backed by real estate, Mission First Capital. Phil prides himself on creatively finding win-win solutions for complex problems and credits his time in the military along with his tenacious, no-quit attitude and commitment to teamwork. Phil regularly shares his knowledge on real estate podcasts and conferences. Phil, welcome to the show today.
2: Hey, Trevor. Thanks. Happy to be here.
1: And Phil, for our audience out there that's tuning into this podcast and they're learning about yourself for the first time, do you mind just going a little bit further into your background and just give them some context on, you know, how you got started into real estate and and all that good stuff that comes along with it.
2: Sure. I often joke that I got into real estate the same way as everyone else, which is traveling around the country, playing drums for a punk rock band, playing poker professionally for a few years, joining the the military and going out for the special operations. And uh, yeah, then finally becoming a real estate agent and flipper. Those are the two real prerequisites. So I, I separated from the Navy in 2012 And dove right into real estate brokerage, had a really good time with it, sold a lot of houses, started flipping houses, flipped three dozen, give or take, over a couple of years. And then finally, the light bulb actually went off and I started buying things to keep. And that's what we're here to talk about, I believe, right?
1: (laughs) Yep, exactly correct. And for those people listening, let's say they're in the flipping space and they're doing one to two flips, let's say on a monthly basis, and it's a lot of work. You're sort of working for that income and it sounds as though you went to sort of more that, that syndication side, raising capital, investing in deals. What was that sort of breaking moment for you where you decided that, hey, I don't want to be flipping these houses and dealing with all that entails. I want to be able to buy, go out and buy a 20, 50, 100 unit apartment complex. And that way, to be able to make a little bit money and make it a little bit easier and have my money grounded.
2: Exactly. So sometimes in life, you get lucky, or at least I do. I feel like I've gotten lucky a lot in my life. Certainly not all of it is deserved. What I found is by sort of being in the arena and taking action, you're provided more opportunities to be lucky. So still working as a real estate agent, still flipping houses. I saw a 13-unit complex at the market, and I thought that One of my buddies and clients would be a perfect match for that. And I could make a nice commission and go about my day. So what happened when I took him over is he didn't really like it. And then in the follow-ups with the other real estate agent, he let me know that the seller would be interested in seller financing the deal. And so I asked, well, would he sell it to me? And long story shorter, he did. That deal we could spend the entire show talking about, but I'll just get to the cliff notes. I bought it very creatively. A little over 900000 was the purchase price. I only used $5,074.01 of my own money and actually just exited that deal after four, four-ish years of ownership and made like 215000 So that was what we'd call a good deal. But the light bulb moment occurred. A couple of months into owning that, these tenants were mailing me the checks. And it was this whole big ritual. I'd compile them. I'd put them in a spreadsheet. I'd march down to the bank with these checks and money orders to deposit them in $10,000, dollars $13,000 a month. And I just thought it was the best thing ever. And as the months continued to tick away, so did the checks. And I thought, if I can do this with thirteen, could I do this with a hundred? Could I do this with five hundred? And so that's what I've spent the last four years of my life doing is sponsoring over 500 apartment units across eight deals. We've exited four of them uh, and done really well and still hanging on to about 340 units, looking to actually exit maybe one of those properties, maybe two remaining, and then uh, you know sort of get into the next, next phase of life for me here, which is uh, operating a Regulation A-plus fund.
1: I think that's a great overview on how you sort of got into that first property, but I think a number that really stood out to me and I'm sure the audience listening is a number we mentioned five thousand seven hundred and forty one dollars on a nine hundred thousand dollar property. You know, that's that's (laughs) that's quite, you know, that's a very little amount for to acquire that much money and leverage. And I'd love for you to walk our audience through how you're able to do that and sort of what that financing strategy looked like on your end.
2: Sure. So yeah, that could be really valuable for those who are wondering how to make the leap, right? Because I didn't have the net worth to go take a million dollar loan, give or take. I didn't have a couple hundred thousand dollars for a traditional down payment. I think all I had bank at that point was like 25000 I gave the seller the price that he wanted. And with a lot of sellers, that is going to be the sticking point. He was an older gentleman. So I said, how can I make this work for me? And what would work for me, what did work for me is the fact that I didn't have to go get an $800,000 mortgage and I didn't have to come up with 200 grand of my own. So we did uh, 800,000 as a seller held first mortgage. And then I did a seller second for 60,000 that I had to pay back within a year. Then I contacted a couple buddies and did what's called a note with them that's not tied to the real estate. Basically said, hey guys, I need to borrow 40K from you. And I'm going to pay you 10% interest or whatever it, it was, and I'll have it back to you in uh a year or two. I, I don't remember the exact term, so forgive me. And then you tack on a couple closing costs. That's how you know I arrived at only putting up, you know, a little over five thousand dollars to acquire the property. But there was one other term that was really instrumental in making the thing work, is I said, Hey, Mr. Seller, the property needs some work. There's some residents we need to get out of there, their problems. So I'm not sure that it's really going to cash flow off the bat. I need the first six months to not make payments to you. So that was a total coup and then work on paying off the seller second and then let it cash flow for a few years, repaired stuff when needed to be repaired, evicted tents when they need to be evicted, so on and so forth, ups, downs, left, rights, and yeah, I enjoyed a, a really nice bump in this real estate market and and got out for a very nice exit recently.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent overview for our audience, especially you know how you're sort of able to fund that deal and and what that creative financing looked like, but since that first deal, you know you've acquired, you know, a couple hundred units in eight different states, and I think the number that stands out or the warning there that stands out to me is the eight different states. And for the states that you're investing in, are they in a specific location in the U.S.? Are they, I guess, all all in the U.S.? Or is there a market that you're looking so,
2: to? Quick correction. I've done eight deals. Eight deals. For a little over 500 units, yeah. But I'm hyper-local to coastal and southeastern Virginia. So that's Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, all the way up to Richmond, Virginia. That's my playground. So mm-hmm. for those, those listening, looking for their first deal... There's some markets that just are going to be hard to make work. New York City, San Francisco, LA might be pretty hard for you to make your first deal there, Um, especially if you're coming from limited means. But if you a more normal market, I guess I'd encourage you to hunt where you live, because just by existing there, you know more than you think you do.
1: And for these properties that are in Virginia, is there a certain sort of asset class that you're looking at? Class B or or Class C properties? Is there a certain you know value-add strategy that you look to do when you're going in and, and trying to find another deal?
2: Yeah. So all of my stuff is is Class C to start. There's some that would be lower end on the Class C, maybe even a D, I dare say. And those deals, the numbers can look real compelling on a spreadsheet, but they end up being huge headaches and then some would be flirting with a B when we find them. And then we'd make them look like a great B when we're done with them. And the the C's that were pretty low end, we'd try to make them closer to a B by the time we were finished. Yeah. I mean, value add it's, it's um it's tried and true. It sounds cliche. It's what everyone's looking for. Um, but particularly in this real estate market, it's hard to buy value or buy a yield play. So what I mean by that is, you, know, you invest $100,000 and you think you're going to get 10000 back, that would be a yieldy kind of deal. 10% cash on cash return is is nice and, and those sure are hard to come by these days. But it is possible to go in and find something that's mismanaged, that there's deficiencies in the physical condition and to go in to make it look like something new and to increase the value that way and thus yield a, a higher cash on cash return. So, I think that's what everyone's up to. It's just tough out there these days.
1: Well, certainly. And speaking of that, as you've been going into, you know, and getting these deals and getting some of these properties under your belt, do you mind just walking our audience through some of the more, you know, difficult challenges that you've experienced as an investor, or one or two things that you wish you were to know now that you wish you could have told yourself, you know, five or six years ago?
2: So it's easy to get blinded by a spreadsheet. What I mean by that is when people are putting together their pro formas or what they think is going to happen when they acquire property, it's usually not out of any kind of malice or ignorance. It's usually done with, this is how we want it to work. I'd encourage you to look into some common things that might go wrong. The shortlist for me is unplanned capital expenditures. If you're playing in you know 60s, 70s, 80s vintage, plumbing problems for if not when, right? So you can only inspect so much going in. People live in apartments pretty, pretty hard. And, you know, backups happen, clogs happen, tenant abuse happens. So that that's a big one. Something that you won't quite understand until it happens to you is insurance claims. We had a couple of fires In buildings that I've owned over the years, in one of them it it wasn't a huge deal. It destroyed a couple of units, and you know the insurance company was right on top of it, and we took care of it. We're back online within I think ninety days, easy peasy, and that's how insurance is supposed to work. We had another that was a much larger claim. It actually destroyed twelve units, and the building had to be totally rebuilt. And. I'll let you know that when an insurance company is obligated to pay north of a million dollars, they don't, they don't take it well. And, um, you know, it, they're in the business of trying to not pay out claims. Um, you know, in, a, in an effort, I guess, to keep premiums down, but, uh, it, it can be a real adventure. Um, when one of these Murphy's law things goes on at your property. So, I'm not sure there's any real advice in there other than plan for it. You know, you hear six to nine months of operating reserves is a good, good kind of rule of thumb of how much you should keep in the bank. With our large fire, I think we went through about a year's worth of reserves, you know, while we we're trying to get that building back online because we had zero income. we were incurring tons of expenses, not only through the vacancy, but it just, you know, made for a unsightly Appearance around the complex and just the, the ripple effect for, from it was huge. Don't shortchange yourself or your project in the way of reserves. It's money well spent to have it sitting aside and and uh, have it there if and when you need it.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent overview for our audience, especially those who, you know, they think that, you know, they're going to spend all the capital that they have on hand and not have any emergency. Reserve especially for things that they can't plan. I'm, I'm sorry that you never plan for these fires, but of course they happen. And, and luckily you're, you're smart, not luckily, but luck, smart enough you were had to have these cash reserves. But Phil, I want to hop into the company, you know, your company mission first capital. And I think that's something that's interesting within it is that, you know, most syndicators that are going out there and say raising capital, you know, most deals you you know, they're requiring, you know, fifty K, accredited investor, high net worth investor. And I thought what was fascinating with mission first capital is someone can come in with a minimum of five thousand dollars and invest that capital with you. And I'd love for you just to walk our audience through someone, let's say they aren't an accredited investor, and let's say they are someone who is a veteran or currently serving on active duty. What does that sort of look like when they're coming to with you, say with a five or or ten thousand dollar check and they want to invest with you in your company?
2: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for allowing a little time to talk about that, because I'm really excited about Mission First Capital. It's going to democratize the way that private equity is done, um, specifically for active duty military members and veterans. Sort of the short answer is I started Mission First because it bugged me that next to none of my high net worth investors from my other projects of the 500 units, were active duty military or veterans. And the reason why is they didn't have the net worth required to have that accredited status, or they didn't make $200,000 a year. And that represents most of my social circle, right? So, you know, my friends be like, what is it that you do? And how come I'm not invited? So long story short, we've changed that. And through our, you know, regulation, a plus fund backed by hundred 100% 100% veteran-owned and operated real estate opportunities. You can come to us with 5,000, 10,000, so long as it doesn't represent more than 10% of your net worth or income. You can invest with us. Anyone, right? You know, we have three different fund options, and uh, check out the website for details. But this is an introduction to private equity. Is Mission First Capital going to take $5,000 and make you uber wealthy in you know the next decade? No. Right, but we're offering um, what I believe are returns on the high side of fare, um, and more importantly, the ability to ride shotgun and take a look at the deals that we're doing with other veterans across a range of asset classes and a range of locales to learn a little bit of a thing or two. So, you're busy serving in the military, you don't have time probably to manage a bunch of rentals. So, let us grow your money over time and when you get out, maybe you've done enough personal development that you want to go and be filled. That's awesome. We want to work with you. If you're a veteran with a deal, we want to take a look at it and you know we'll come in and help you out with the equity, the senior debt, the accounting, the asset management, the construction management, all that stuff because I sure wish somebody had this available when I, I was first trying to do my early deals. It would have accelerated my trajectory, I mean, dramatically. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a vehicle for not only financial security for active duty and veterans, but also um, financial freedom over time.
1: I think that's an, an excellent opportunity for those out there who are in aren't you know that may be military a veteran or active duty. So I think that's a, that's definitely helpful for them, especially if they want to go out and you know dip their toes in and just sort of see what that private equity side looks like. But Phil, I just want to say thank you for your, you know, your time today. And I just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions before we end the show today. Sure. Do you happen to have a favorite real estate investing or business book that you'd recommend for our audience to check out, of course, other than the book that you wrote yourself?
2: <laughs> yeah. So for, for any veterans or for anyone who has a veteran in their life, obviously, I would want to say my own, right? <laughs> um, the book that really did it for me is the millionaire real estate investor the blue book by gary keller i call it just the bible the overview of how does this real estate thing work and it's broken down in a very layman's kind of way that anyone can follow along with it's got stories of dozens of millionaire real estate investors that gary keller knows and it's just super compelling motivational in practical. So I think that's a great place to start.
1: And Phil, last question of the day, where can our audience find you?
2: So, um, you know, I'm I'm on the social channels, you know, Facebook, Instagram, but going forward, almost everything that I do is going to be through Mission First Capital. So, if anything I said on the show today resonates with you, if you'd like to learn a little bit more, you'd like to look into investing with us or you just want a free copy of my book, You can have a digital copy of uh, your VA loan for free by going to missionfirstcapital.com.
1: Awesome. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes of today's episode. And Phil, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. I know our audience will really enjoy this.
2: Fantastic. Thanks, Trevor. It was great talking with you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. For full show notes on today's episode, go to PodcastingYou.com. That's PodcastingYou.com. If you have feedback from today's episode, feel free to email us at Trevor at podcastingu.com. Thanks for listening.